Hello and welcome to the Conversation Weekly. I'm Nihal Al Hadi in Toronto. And I'm Ant Marijuani in Medellin, Colombia. Men, today we're going to be talking about ecosystems and biomes, but not ones that are out there in the environment. We're actually going to be talking about the ecosystems and biomes that comprise the human body. I did read a while ago that bacteria and other microbes in our body possibly outnumber our own cells. I'm guessing that somehow related? Absolutely. There are trillions of cells that make up the human body and just over half of them belong to bacteria and microbes. So, if there's so many of them, what are they doing? How are they even interacting with our human cells? Well, scientists are finding that their interactions are actually really crucial to the ways in which our body functions. A microbiome is a collection of microbes and bacteria and their interactions with each other, with other human cells, their environments. Today we're going to be talking about a specific microbiome, which is the gut. I spoke to three researchers who study the gut's microbiome, its interactions, and its effect on our health. I'm Chris Damon. I'm clinical associate professor of medicine and gastroenterology at the University of Washington. Chris's research looks at the intersection of microbes in our health, and he's specifically interested in the gut microbiome. But before getting into his work, I wanted to know what exactly he's referring to when he speaks of the gut. The gut is really shorthand for the entire passageway going from the esophagus down to the stomach, down into the small intestine, the large intestine. And those are more clinical terms for the colloquial term gut. But it's essentially the organ that allows us to digest food and that harbors the gut microbiome. Okay, so what is the gut microbiome? So the gut microbiome is the collection of organisms and their genetic material in particular that live within us, within our gut specifically. There's microbiomes uh, that exist on our skin as well and actually uh, in the environment in the dirt. But the gut microbiome is within our gut. The majority of the microbes actually reside within the colon, which is the large intestine, although there are significant numbers of bugs as well in the small intestine, just orders of magnitude less. And there are bacteria, there are fungi, there are these really ancient organisms that many people haven't heard of called archaea. They kind of look like bacteria. And then there's, in many people, protists. So those would be some of the parasites that are harbored largely in equatorial regions or lower income settings. And all these microbes exist in a community. Chris compared the gut biome to a natural ecosystem. You could imagine the vibrancy of a very healthy, colorful coral reef, like the Great Barrier Reef. That is our gut microbiome and health. But in disease, a lot of us have impoverished communities and it could be likened to a bleached coral reef, where a lot of that vibrancy and biodiversity is gone. And the elements that they're contributing to health, the molecules, are also missing. So when the biome suffers, it can impact our overall health. Perhaps one of the more obvious ways in which this can happen is in relation to our digestive system and metabolism. The microbiome plays an incredibly important role in digesting our food. We have powerful enzymes that our pancreas and our liver and our stomach, our salivary glands make that start the digestive process that break things like complex carbohydrates down into sugars, proteins down into amino acids, fatty acids down into smaller components. But 
our enzymes that our bodies can produce only do so much. And there is a lot of undigested material, specifically fiber, but other things as well that make it all the way down into the lower intestine. So the last part of the small intestine and the large intestine, the colon. And it's there that our microbiome actually have a feast on these leftovers, converting the fiber into things that are really important for our health. Things like butyrate and other short chain fatty acids, uh, things that modulate our immune system, play an important role in our cognition as well as metabolism. In his research, he's studying how the gut is communicating with other organs in the body. The microbiome is involved in so much of our health and probably connected to a lot of disease as well, as we're learning in research. Just like our heart pumps blood to every organ in our body, literally, right, to our brain, to our muscles, our liver, etc., the microbes in our gut are making factors that are absorbed into our bloodstream and pumped to every part of our body. So the microbes are relevant certainly to the gut, the lining of the gut in particular, but are relevant to the immune system, to the brain, to our metabolism, through not just the molecules they're making, but the connections that are forged from the gut to these other organs. So the gut health axis refers to the bidirectional communication between the gut and various systems in the body, including the brain, immune system, and endocrine system or metabolism. And by studying the way that the gut microbiome interacts with these other systems, Chris says, scientists may be able to influence not just the gut itself, but all of these other pathways that make up our overall health. To do that, though, Chris and his colleagues need to understand what factors are unique to one individual and what factors can be generalized to a set of people. How similar are people's biomes to each other? Does everybody have the same biome, everybody in a particular family or area? It depends on how you measure it and how granular you get. So if you're looking at the level of species and certainly strains, which is even more granular than species, everyone's biome is very distinct. If you take that up a notch and rather than looking at the specific species that are present there, but what they're doing, their metabolic capacity, then things start to look a lot more similar between people. If you look at a community that has a very similar lifestyle and a similar diet, their metabolic capacity is going to be more similar than another community that's having a very different type of diet. How similar are microbiomes and are they interchangeable? That's actually an area of really active research. And as you can imagine, with the fecal transplant studies that are happening, where you're taking one person's presumably healthy microbiome that's been screened very carefully with questionnaires and various tests to make sure there aren't any bad actors there and give that to another individual that might have a depleted microbiome. We're finding that not only are some of the species engrafting, but they also tend to pull out some of the healthier players within that person's native microbiome as well. Is that a positive or a desire? It's a positive thing. Yeah, okay. because they're creating an environment that's conducive for those healthy microbes to, to resurface. But it's an incredibly complex event, you can imagine, taking one ecosystem and grafting it into another, essentially. 
He says that researchers began paying greater attention to the gut microbiome and its relationship to our overall health when they were studying Clostridioides difficile, or C. difficile infections. C. difficile is a bacterial disease that causes inflammation of the colon and is often a result of antibiotic treatment. It's an infection of the large intestine, and it's a specific bacteria that causes it when the gut microbiome is depleted. And this is one of the low-hanging fruits for microbial therapies that involve transfer of whole microbiomes. And this is the one condition that's been incredibly successful being treated with not just fecal transplants, but a number of groups and companies are developing communities of bacteria that are fully defined and that aren't derived from stool. They're derived from isolates that came from stool. So these defined communities help decrease any risk associated with a fecal transplant and can be finely tailored to specific conditions. Using microbes for therapy is still in its very early days. While we have a lot of correlation between gut microbiomes and conditions, everything from Alzheimer's to autoimmune disease to metabolic disease, the evidence that supports causation, where you're actually giving microbes to somebody and affecting the course of a disease in people is less. Where we do have that causation evidence is within models, animals, rodents largely. And there are exceptions within people where we do have that evidence and it's starting to come through. Okay, so it sounds like the gut microbiome is like this enormous ecosystem that's interacting with every aspect of our body, just on a tiny, tiny scale. Yeah, I love the analogy of a coral reef that lives inside of us and has all of these complex interactions that seem to be occurring on this very small scale, but have impacts on the whole universe of our body. So if the body's so complex and involves trillions of microbes and microorganisms, I can imagine that studying every aspect of this sort of ecosystem takes a really long time and also a lot of work. Where do you even start as a researcher? I also wanted to find that out, so I reached out to Andrea Merchak. Andrea recently completed her PhD in neuroscience at the University of Virginia and is about to start her postdoctoral research at the University of Florida in the United States. Andrea looks at the way microorganisms in our guts interact with and impact mood disorders and our immune and central nervous systems. And as part of her research, she's been sampling and analyzing the microbes that make up the gut microbiome. So when you're first born, you don't really have that many microbes on you and you first have exposure through the birth canal or just after delivery. And throughout the course of your development in life through childhood, you just accumulate these bacteria. So these single celled organisms that live in community and they stay with you your entire life. And there's thousands of species and there's just in the gut alone, trillions of individual microbes that are living their happy, healthy lives and they feed off of the food that you eat and they grow and they talk to each other and it's almost like a little forced community that's living inside you. 
Andrea says that it wasn't until the early 2000s that researchers began to have the technology required to sequence DNA and distinguish microbes. Sequencing refers to the process of determining or deciphering the genetic information encoded in an organism's DNA. Basically what that means is that we can take a sample of feces or a sample from your intestines and look through it and see which bacteria based on their genetic material are in there. And so beyond having those data, you also need to be able to label those data. So if I've got a collection of A, T, Cs, and Gs, that doesn't mean much unless I can match it to a particular organism. So we are in the spot right now where we are trying to build these libraries and name everything that we're seeing in the gut. So we're at the stage right now where we know how many species are in there. We can track them over time, but we don't yet know a lot about all of their biologies. We don't necessarily know what they're doing or how they are interacting with each other. And that's the work that's going on right now. Identifying individual bacteria and microorganisms in the gut biome helps researchers like Andrea better understand what specific role an individual bacterium or microorganism has in the gut, how it interacts with other bacteria or microorganisms, and what their relationships might be to certain diseases or symptoms. But it also helps compare the gut biome of one person to that of another, or track changes within an individual and look for clues in what might be causing an illness. One of the ways that we can identify it for a single patient is sampling over time and saying, oh, this is what your gut microbiome has looked like for the past five years, and now all of a sudden there's this shift. What's going on? And so that might be one piece of the future is tracking this over time. So we have been able to track differences in people's microbiomes through the course of disease. Just for example, take somebody with multiple sclerosis. They're going to have a different microbiome from when they're perfectly healthy through diagnosis and then through late stages of disease. That microbiome is going to change. And we've been able to see that. And so I'm trying to understand how our bodies are responding to that. So our assumptions are that these changes in the microbiome are impacting our physiology and that these impacts are having a change in disease progression. And then there's also a piece of that's if we can modify that, we can develop therapies. She says that multiple sclerosis is particularly interesting to researchers like herself because it's a disease that develops slowly over a long period of time and gives researchers the time to investigate each stage in depth. So people are affected with multiple sclerosis. They generally are diagnosed in their 30s and they live with it through their entire lives. And through the progression of multiple sclerosis, there's several different types, but often a patient is going to have these chronic, these relapses, where they have these autoimmune events that lead to just gradual destruction of their nervous systems. And it happens over a really long period of time, which means that we have a really long time to intervene and a really long time to try and stop what's going on. When a person's first diagnosed, they're not necessarily at the point of severe disability yet. We can see it early and we can try and stop it. So I think that it just provides a really unique way for us to study these autoimmune disorders in a way that can have a huge impact on a lot of people's lives. To study multiple sclerosis, Andrea works primarily with lab mice. With mice, what we're able to do is actually genetically manipulate them. So what I've done is I've 
changed one of the sensors of the microbiome. In this context, biosensors refer to the protein and signaling molecules found both in our own cells and in the bacteria and fungi in the gut microbiome. These biosensors can sense a lot of different signals and also respond to what we eat. They let our body know things like which bacteria are most likely not dangerous versus which are dangerous. So what I've done is I've changed one of the sensors of the microbiome. So it's a pretty well characterized sensor. It's called the aryl hydrocarbon receptor or AHR. And we essentially deleted it out of the certain population of cells in these mice. And this sensor has been shown over and over again to be really important in disease progression in mice. And so we were expecting that we were just gonna try and figure out like, how is it communicating? What microbes is it sensing? What signals is it sending to the rest of our body? And what we found out instead was that it's actually modifying the microbiome itself. So not only are these sensors responding to what's going on in the gut, but they're also actively changing the population of microorganisms that they're sensing. So this is, I think, really important because we don't yet know why these populations are changing. And so this is another piece of that puzzle that's just been missing for a while. How and why are the microbiome populations changing? So that's a look at the mechanistic of how one might approach an experiment studying the microbiome but we can also do observational studies. So that's when, say you bring patients into the clinic and you can take samples of feces and then sequence them and look at all of the microbes that are living in there. And some of the cool ways that people have done that is looking at it over time, or you can look at, for example, one very cool paper took twins, so who are identical twins, one of the twins had multiple sclerosis had been diagnosed and the other had not and so they're able to look at these people who are genetically identical and have been exposed to pretty similar environments and see what the changes in their microbiomes are and see trends across that so that's just an example of how we've been able to do observational studies as well what challenges do you find in your work one of the main limitations is that these bacteria a lot of them only live in the intestines and so they generally don't like to be exposed to oxygen. So a lot of what we are able to sample through feces is not actually reflective of what's going on inside the body because a lot of the ones that do not like oxygen are not going to be coming out through the feces. And so we're not actually going to be able to see them. So it's like there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of guesswork involved because you don't actually know mm-hmm. what you're not seeing or what's yeah. happening by the time you see it. Sometimes we're just seeing a shadow of what's happened. Thankfully, we have some patients who, especially if they're going in for intestinal biopsies or something like that, we're able to get samples from the source. And we're really thankful for all the patients who are willing to give us that piece when going through some very difficult diagnostic procedures. And then a lot of the work is limited to mice because we are able to access the intestinal contents for them. And so in that way, we can get a much closer look at how all of these interactions are actually occurring in the place where they're occurring. Okay. So what have you found? What is the correlation between these, the gut biome and what it produces and multiple sclerosis? Several groups are looking into this. So myself specifically, I 
have most recently been focused on bile acids, which are basically the digestive juices that you produce that make their way through your digestive tract. And your bacteria actually break them down when they get into the intestines. And what we found is that when the bacteria are unable to break down those bile acids in the way that you would see in a normal, healthy body, it actually can be protective in multiple sclerosis. And so this is one of those metabolic pathways that we're thinking about is if we can slow down the breakdown of bile acids, maybe that could have a therapeutic effect. She says to do that, her research team is looking at the impact of diet on MS. We know that if you change what you eat, it changes the composition of your gut microbiome. And so ultimately, if we find beneficial bacteria that we think is going to be promising for a wide swath of people, generally that's going to come with a dietary change in order to maintain those populations. One of the difficult things about this is that as soon as you stop that particular diet, whatever it is, generally your composition tends to drift back to your baseline very quickly. And so this is it's very difficult to get these stable changes. And so that's one of the things that we are trying to look at is instead of trying to change the population for long periods of time, which is very difficult to do and takes a lot of attention to, to maintain, what are these bacteria producing and can we harness these metabolites or small molecules that they're producing as a drug or therapeutic in that way. So we can skip that step of changing the population itself and instead come up with a pill or a small molecule that we can give through whatever, IV or something like that, that can skip that step and be a little bit more easy to dose and a little bit, it'll be available to a wider population of people. One way to do that is by using probiotics, which are live microorganisms that are considered beneficial for the gut and overall health when consumed in adequate amounts. They can be found in certain foods like yogurt and fermented vegetables, or they can be taken as dietary supplements. But she says research is showing probiotics don't seem to have a lasting effect on the community of microorganisms in the gut in people with MS. And so essentially with this, you give a person a big dose of a single bacteria. And that bacteria then has to be able to inhabit your body for a long period of time, right? It has to live and it has to find the appropriate nutrients and things like that. And your body might not necessarily be set up in a way to allow this bacteria to flourish. And so often with these probiotic studies, someone has to take this particular probiotic, whatever it is, every single day, or else they're going to lose the population just because it gets outcompeted or it just doesn't thrive. It's very difficult for us to change the microbiome for any long period of time. And so that's what I'm talking about in that we've tried this and there's evidence that in some people it works, but for the most, it's not a lasting solution. So we are trying to find ways around trying to get this organism to live in this environment and instead figure out what that organism is producing and skip that step. And hopefully this will make it available to people who aren't able to get these expensive drugs every single day for the rest of their lives. While it's too early to draw any conclusions and make specific recommendations, she says it's clear that the environment someone is in can have long-lasting impacts on their gut biome. Almost any aspect of how you're living your life is going to have an impact on your microbiome. Most importantly, your diet 
but also whether or not you're exposed to animals, where you live, what is in the air, where you live, what pollutants you're exposed to. All of these things are going to change your microbiome. And she says, based on the research, the scientific community is excited about what this field of study might promise in treating autoimmune and mood disorders in the future. So as far as understanding basic biology and understanding disease processes, it's called the microbiome because it's looking at the collection of the genetic material in the microbes. Oh, biome. It's similar to like the human genome. So all that excitement that came from mapping the human genome is currently similar to what we're seeing with studying the microbiome and mapping the microbiome. By being able to map this and understand this, we're just going to have a lot more clues as to what's going on in all diseases. We know autoimmune diseases have a lot of environmental factors that lead to the triggering of the autoimmune event. That's been very well characterized. And this is one of the most intimate relationships that we have with our environment is this relationship that we have with our microbes. So this is a very good logical next place to look for understanding those triggers. And then when we think about mental health, there's growing evidence that mood disorders especially have an immune component to them. And that by further understanding, could immune triggers be initiating these mood disorders, specifically thinking about anxiety and anxiety-related events, PTSD, could we interrupt these cycles of altered brain chemistry by getting the rest of our bodies back in balance? Okay, what Andrea is saying sounds really promising. Although the field is still in its early days, it sounds like researchers like herself are already finding evidence between what's happening in the gut and other parts of the body. Absolutely. And Andrea also told me that these biosensors are more like a thermostat than a thermometer, in that not only do they sense the gut's microbiome composition, but they can also actively trigger processes that adjust the biome's composition. So if these biosensors are so important to what's going on in our body, I guess that there's a lot of work going into manipulating them in order to be able to somehow take advantage of their active role in the body. Yeah, so I wanted to understand a little bit more about that. And I reached out to Tesak Moon, who's a researcher in the field of synthetic biology. So synthetic biology is an engineering discipline that focuses on creating or modifying biological systems for practical applications. Tesak Moon is a researcher at Washington State University and council member of the Engineering Biology Research Consortium, which brings together researchers from around the world. This exciting field tries to solve global problems, including climate crisis, sustainable biomanufacturing, non-invasive diagnostics, therapeutics, and food inequality. Synthetic biology is trying to address medical problems as well by developing non-invasive sensors for diagnostic applications, such as detecting internal bleeding or gut inflammation, and by developing therapeutic probiotics that cure potentially gut disease and that is actually my focus area in synthetic biology for medically relevant applications. Have you heard about neurochemical such as adrenaline, dopamine, serotonin, etc., found in your gut? In your gut. Have you? 
No. Yeah. Like I know them as neurotransmitters, no? Yeah. So that is a typical answer from general people. Even scientists have no idea. In fact, several years ago, scientists discovered neurochemical that used to be believed basically produced by the brain cell, also found in your gut. That's an amazing wake-up call to me because we believe neurochemical only produced by brain cell. And I was so amazed by that discovery. Neurotransmitters like adrenaline and serotonin are chemical messengers that transmit signals between nerve cells in the body. It was thought that neurotransmitters were mainly produced and used by nerve cells in the brain, but a recent discovery found that many neurotransmitters are also present in the gut. This discovery highlights that there is a two-way communication between the gut and the brain, and this opens up a range of possibilities. In his work, Tessuk is looking to engineer a biosensor that can sense molecules in the gut and immediately respond to and alter the composition of the gut biome. He gave me the example of a supercharged probiotic yogurt that could potentially contain such a biosensor in the form of a bacterium that contains engineered enzymes. I basically taking every day, yogurt contain probiotic that is a living bacteria. What I want to do is you take the my yogurt and this bacteria contain so-called biosensors. That biosensor detect some neurochemical, let's say the neurochemical is the serotonin. Our method is basically using probiotic bacteria also produce neurochemical, including serotonin. Also bacteria utilize, metabolize serotonin. So what I want to do is there are some enzymes that break down or synthesize serotonin. And in response to serotonin level, bacteria would have ability to control the concentration of serotonin by producing enzyme that break down serotonin if the serotonin level is too high. If a level is too low, bacteria also produce enzyme that synthesize serotonin. So that's similar to the temperature control in your room. The punchline is, do you want to be happy? Take my yogurt, you will be always happy. So that's the, my craziest dream I wanted to achieve. In that way, your serotonin level is always between the happy region or concentration. If we kind of engineer bacteria and then we equip the bacteria with a sensor, bacteria will have the ability to basically control the production of specific enzyme and then I basically connect this sensor with this enzyme. That's incredible. What it sounds like you're looking at is ways in which if we understand how certain microbes act within the gut microbiome, then we can use it, and especially because of the presence of these neurotransmitters that are being produced there, that um, it's a different way to kind of alter or adjust the body's chemistry to lead to greater well-being. We already see probiotic yogurts in the market already, right. but yours would be just like the next level of that. When you're undertaking this work, what challenges or limitations do you encounter? The challenges are everybody different. So that means food consumption is different. That means the, you probably prefer 
ABCD protein, I prefer one, two, three, four protein. That kind of gives some complication because I need to have personalized probiotics so in some sense. How can I make the universal probiotic that applicable to everybody? That is a challenging one. And the other one is in contrast to the lab condition, our gut is very complex and dynamic. So because of that, you know, you need to have very robust probiotic that responds to changing fluctuating condition rather than very homogeneous condition that typically we perform in the lab. Another challenge is to engineer microbes that are safe and don't have any undesired impacts in contexts where they're not supposed to be active. Because we engineer probiotic that is a genetically modified. So the main issue again is to ensure biocontainment. And to this end, we have developed so-called kill switch. For example, our kill switch enable my probiotics to self-destruct after release into the environment. Thus, probiotic can cure our gut disease. And once their mission is accomplished and come out of our body, they basically die in the environment. In that way, we ensure biocontainment. So for example, my bacteria working without killing themselves in the gut, that is the temperature is around 37 Celsius. But once bacteria come out of your body, outside temperature, probably a little bit below 30 degree, the temperature at night and it's go down around 30 degree. And in response to that temperature shift, my kill switch start to working and then basically bacteria start to die. Scientists should think about that danger every single second. Otherwise, we may unexpectedly generate monster. Okay, these probiotics that Taesuk is working on sound straight out of a sci-fi movie where you just take a pill and it can somehow magically deal with any health issue that you have, anything from your immune system to mental health. So, I mean, that's the idea, a magic pill that solves a whole host of problems. But Taesuk also told me that we're still far away from that and he doesn't expect to have anything workable within a decade. Given that we're talking about such a hugely complex ecosystem of microorganisms, that makes a lot of sense. But before we get to that magic pill stage of medicine, there are actually things that we can do to keep the bugs in our gut healthy. Here's Chris Damon again. I guess I'd give advice that I try to follow myself and that as a family, we try to follow. I say eat fermented foods because the fermented foods are where a lot of those probiotics are derived from in the first place. In an artisanal fermented food, you have the entire complement, the full community, the full ecosystem of microbes present in that food. And the evidence around fermented foods is actually growing. There was a fascinating study done out of Stanford that showed there was an increase in microbial diversity with consumption of fermented foods and a decrease in inflammation in the blood. And that was an interventional study. So really interesting. Another study that was done was an epidemiological study. So this is just correlation, but it found that foods that were fermented or had live bacteria correlated with better health outcomes, specifically lower weight, better blood pressure, better cholesterol. A lot of the chronic conditions 
that are associated with things like stroke and heart attacks that we're interested in when we go to our physician and we have our blood pressure checked. That's pretty good advice. If you can follow that, great. But Chris also recognizes that not everybody can follow this advice. And so I guess my advice to listeners is your journey is personal. There's more than just biology and medicine. It's also cultural. And to validate that, because I don't know if we hear that enough, especially within clinical spaces. And to not lose hope in that journey and that there are solutions that exist and there are approaches that are open-minded to holistic care that's very complementary to really important, powerful medicines. So that would be my bit of advice. That's it for this episode. Thank you to this week's guests, Chris Damon, Andrea Merchuk, and Tisak Moon. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us podcast at theconversation.com. If you like what we do, please support our podcast and the conversation more broadly by going to donate.theconversation.com. This episode of The Conversation Weekly was produced and written by me, Ment Mariwani, and with assistance from our producer, Katie Flood. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens, and our theme music is by Nita Sal. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor. Alice Mason runs our social media, and I'm also the show's executive producer. I'm Nihal Al-Hadi. Thanks for listening.